All right, uh, the beautiful Renee Ali is going to come and uh, give us our reading for today, which is for Genesis 15. Some time later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I'll protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these things to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures, vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun went down, and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants, all the way from the borders of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Thank you, Renee. Excellent. Another good reader. You can give a round of applause. Much better than uh, listening to me uh, read for 20 verses or whatever it was. So we're looking at the uh, journey of Abraham as a bit of a mirror uh, for our own faith journey. And last week we looked at Genesis chapter 12, and which is the beginning uh, of the story uh, of Abram. And uh, the encouragement was during the week to read that, that passage. And I'd uh, love us to read together right through Genesis and the story of Abram uh, over the next few weeks. Every week there'll be that opportunity. So uh, it's, it's uh, at the end of the uh, notes of every sermon. You can have a look online. Uh, we'll put it at the end of the slides as well so that you can follow along. And I encourage you to read it from the New Living Translation, so the NLT, uh, which is a translation which is really written uh, in today's kind of English and makes it a little bit easier to understand than some other translations. So last week I gave you a little bit of a picture of Genesis and what's, what, what, what is Genesis about. So I've got the diagram uh, for you again. And Genesis 1 to 11 is really primordial, so prehistoric 
uh, history, if you like, or before history even. So we get the creation in chapter 1, we get another version of creation in chapter 2, we get Genesis chapter 3 is a story of where man uses the power of their choice, their right to make their own choices, and they use that against God who has created them. And so man rebels against God and is separated from him, and things go downhill pretty quickly. So Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, get in a fight. One murders the other, and things spiral out of control pretty quickly. And basically, Genesis 1 to 11 shows us that human beings, without a healthy relationship with God, tend to get themselves in trouble. Left to their own devices, a man or a woman will tend to get themselves in trouble. And by Genesis chapter 11, man has used their own wisdom to build this tower, the Tower of Babel, because they want to reach up to heaven with this tower and be like God and be famous without God, be like God and have their own fame. And God confuses their languages and disperses them all over the face of the earth. And the world is left in a very dark place. Humanity is confused. That's what Babel means or Babylon means. It means confusion. And humanity is in a dark place, confused, spread out, scattered across the face of the earth. And then out of that darkness, out of that bad time, out of that valley, out of that difficult season, out of that crisis and catastrophe, God speaks to one man. And gives him a promise. And that's the little link you can see there between chapters 1 to 11 and chapters 12 to 50 of Genesis. That's the link. That's the connection point. God promises to this one man, Abraham, that he will become a great nation. So he'll have sons and daughters and children, and they'll have children, and they'll grow into a great nation. And that from this great nation, not only will his people eventually became the Israelites or the Jewish people, not only would those people be a blessed, prosperous people, but all the nations of the earth would be affected through Abraham, who was called the father of many nations, and all the nations of the earth would be affected through this one Jewish nation, and we know that that is through Jesus Christ, who was a Jew and came out of that nation. But chapters 12 to 50 tell the story of this first family Abraham and his sons and daughters. And we're looking at seven different tests, tests of our faith as we journey through our faith, faith journey, our pilgrimage of trust and faith in God. We're looking at seven different tests that Abraham went through. So last week was the detachment test, and I hope you had a chance to discuss the questions around that, maybe in your life group or maybe with your husband or wife or your roommates at home or something like that. We had a great chat in my life group during the week. And today we're going to look at the belief test. So we're jumping a couple of chapters here, which we may come back to later on. So chapter 13 and 14, and we're jumping to chapter 15. And we're going to touch on the belief test today. But let me quickly take you back to the promise. What was the promise that God gave Abraham? I'll read it again. I read it last week. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed It's pretty amazing that 4,000 years ago, God gave this promise to Abram, and we sit here four millennia later, 
still living out that promise of the blessing of many nations. It's incredible. And it all started with this one man. And we're going to look at that today, the belief test that Abraham believed God. So we jump on the next slide. This, again, is giving us a bit of an idea of Genesis here. Really, there's three main themes in the book of Genesis. The first theme, and we captured it there right in the promise, is partnership and blessing. God promises Abraham, promises that there'll be a partnership between God and Abraham and that he will be blessed because of that partnership. The second thing, I'm going to introduce you to a new word here you might not have heard before, progeny. Okay, Progeny means posterity or the next generation. So God says to him, you're going to become a great nation. But Abram doesn't have any children, so he's going to need a son. And we see this theme all the way through Genesis that there's this chosen son, this special son that's going to come along. And he ends up being, do you remember? Sunday school question. Isaac. And then Isaac, he has to have a son. There's another chosen son, and that becomes Jacob. And then he has 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, there's one that's really special, and that's Joseph. And then the line continues. So there's this theme all the time of a chosen son. Are you hearing, uh, uh, seeing shadows here or hearing echoes of Jesus Christ here? The chosen son, the Messiah that would come. And then the third theme here, and this is a little bit of an odd theme for us as modern Western people. We don't very, have a very good connection with the land or with place. We're very transient people that move here and there for jobs and money and lifestyles. But most people, especially indigenous people, have a good understanding of the importance of place and land. But if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard the term promised land. And this is the land, this is where that saying comes from, a promised land. This is where it comes from. Abraham would have a promised land, a place to call his own. It's called Canaan early in Genesis. Then it becomes to be known as Judah or Israel later on. So these are the three themes that we're going to see throughout the book of Genesis. But before I jump into Genesis 15 and talk about the belief test, I just wanted to set the record straight because there's been a few rumors flying around the church again. I know churches can be places of gossip and talking and whatever, but apparently someone's been saying that I may have shed a tear last week in my sermon. And I just want to set the record straight and just say I had a very dry throat. I ate many, many handfuls of nuts before I got on the stage, and I think maybe a shell of a nut might have got caught <coughs> in my throat, and I choked up a little bit as I was speaking. No, I did. I admit, I admit. I did uh, shed a little tear up here last week, and uh, I thank you. I got a few lovely emails and what have you, but I admit, I did cry a little bit. I did shed a little tear, and I'm not much of a crier. And I'm not much for emotions. I'm very low, low, low in neuroticism. Have you ever done the uh, five big personality test. It's the one that Jordan Peterson always talks about. Okay, it's probably the best, uh, most researched personality test in the world. Millions and millions of people have done it. One of the measures in the personality test is around emotion and neuroticism. So if there's 100 people in the room on that test, I came out as 1% for neuroticism. So it means 100 people in the room, 99 of them are going to be more up and down in their emotions than I'm going to be. So I'm very stable it's very stable, which is a great thing at times, but the bad thing is it makes me pretty boring. <laughs> makes me not very exciting. <laughs> Who said that? So that's why I married a wife that had lots of colour and lots of emotion and lots of excitement, and she's taking me on a great adventure. 
but yeah, I'm a bit low on that. But God has been working in my heart for years and years and years because it doesn't matter your personality, God can soften your heart and he can teach you to feel deeper and he can teach you to embrace things. And what I've come to learn is that tears are essential to a healthy soul and really unavoidable for those that follow Jesus. Maturity, I said this last week, maturity as a Christian, growing up in your faith, is actually comes with the ability to embrace and feel deep sorrow and deep pain. Let me read a few scriptures to you. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. That's a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah about Jesus. That was the kind of man he was. He was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with deep grief. So Jesus models for us how we should handle the pain and suffering of the world. You're going to be, go through pain. You're going to go through ups and downs. It's not about avoiding pain. It's not about saying, I'm okay when I'm not okay. It's actually learning to cry through the pain, embrace the pain, the disappointments. This is one of my favorites, Ecclesiastes 1.18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And that's very counterintuitive because everything in our culture tells us the more knowledge, the more wisdom, the more success, the less you are rattled, the less you let your emotions get to you. The greater the leader, the higher the wage, the more higher the performer, the less you get bothered by things. Yet Ecclesiastes tells us that actually as your wisdom grows, your sorrow will grow. Why? Because the wise don't avoid pain and suffering, they embrace it and are able to sit with it. With maturity comes the ability to sit with disappointment and just sit with that. When's the last time something bad happened to you and you just let yourself be sad for a couple of weeks? You just got in a place of prayer, you sat with God, you didn't pray all this stuff or prophesy all this stuff or put all this worship music on to distract yourself, but you just sat there, just wrote in your journal and said, my life sucks. I'm really struggling with my faith, Lord God. I feel super betrayed by this person. And just emotionally honest. We have 150 Psalms written by, mostly by David, and most of them are him just bearing his soul, bearing his soul to God, embracing grief. Life is pain and suffering. Jesus went through pain and suffering. But the whole message of Christianity is that pain and suffering, even death on a cross, is not the end. Because from death comes life. From Jesus' crucifixion on the cross came resurrection. While Jesus was here on the earth, this is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. While Jesus was here on the earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. There's many times I've sat there in sorrow, in pain over the last year or two. And I don't reflect so much on the pain or stay in the pain because staying there or getting frustrated or pointing fingers at people only leads to bitterness and leads to problems and gets you all stuck up. But you embrace the pain, you sit with the sorrow, but you look to God. You know, Dan chose four fantastic songs for us this morning. What did they all do? They point us to God. He is faithful. He is true. He has the answers. He wins through. 
Last week, I didn't get emotional because I've had a couple of hard years. You've had a couple of hard years. I got a bit emotional because I started talking about despite the pain, God is faithful. Despite the trial, God's grace is there. Despite my weakness and fallibility and the struggles that I go through and you go through and fragile as a human, God is faithful every single time. You know, fail, if we fail to grieve and then heal, grieve over disappointment and then heal, we're going to come to a crisis of faith. If you don't heal from the things that have gone on in your life that are difficult, what will suffer will be your faith and your trust in God. That's what will suffer. We all go through different crises of faith. This is part of the faith journey. It's what we're going to talk about today with Abraham. He came to the place where he either going to believe or he was not going to believe God. He was either going to trust the promises of God or he was not going to trust the promises of God. I'm sorry to be so black and white, but that's what it comes to. God offers us Jesus and him crucified and says, follow him. And we either follow him and walk the narrow path or we don't follow him. We either believe or we don't believe. But it's grief and disappointment. Maybe your parents got divorced. Maybe you lost your dream job. Maybe you're in financial difficulties. Maybe you're feeling anxious and depressed at the moment because of the lockdowns and coming out of COVID and the political tension or the racial tensions that we've been living through. There's been all kinds of waves of tension and difficulty that have been hitting us as human beings over the last few years. They hit again and again and again, like waves against a beach. They hit they hit, they hit, and they can erode our faith. Problems in life can erode our faith. They can lead us to a place where we have a bit of a crisis of faith. Never before as a pastor have I heard so much of, oh, I'm just not sure about God anymore. Oh, I'm just not going to come to church at the moment because I'm just not, I don't, oh, I'm not sure if it's all real. I don't know. So many people are struggling. We have a crisis of faith in the church, the place of belief, <laughs> But we have a crisis of faith in our nation, in Australia. The census results that came out a couple of months ago told us that Christianity has again dived. The amount of people that self-identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, again dropped. Now we've had a 17% drop in the last two decades, from about 61% down to 44% of Aussies who say that they're a Christian. We have a crisis of faith in our own nation of Australia. We are not a Christian nation any longer. We may be in our roots and our history, but we're really becoming and have become a secular nation, a post-Christian nature. But the same problems in the church. We have challenges in the church, don't we? We have sexual abuse scandals that have been difficult. How's your faith go when you hear that pastors and priests have abused children? We have many, many leaders in our flavor of evangelical flavor of Christianity, many leaders over the last year or two that have deconstructed their faith to nothing or that have fallen from positions of power. We've got the rise of the celebrity pastor and the, and, and, and the YouTube prophet and the Instagram you know, spiritual mentor. And we've got all these things that are just new and unusual that we're trying to work through. What is Christianity? What is God? What's the purpose of church? Deep questions are being asked of our faith as people who believe in God, but also just as normal Aussies. Cultural issues, racial things, financial stress, interest rates going up, 
inflation going up. This creates stress. They put pressure on our faith. The whole question for the church of LGBT and how we handle these things, it pushes, puts pressure on our trust in God. All of it comes down to this simple core. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I just want to be clear today. Everything, all the pressure, all the challenges, all the tension that you have personally, that we have as Australians, that we have as the church and the people of God, they all come down to this one piece. Faith. Who you're going to trust. Who you're going to believe. You get a portion of faith and you get to invest it in something. You're going to put it in something. You are going to put that investment in something or someone. A lot of people put it in things, physical things, houses and jobs and positions and titles. A lot of people put it in someone else. Well, this person is going to make me happy. This person will make me feel whole. This partner. A lot of people put it in their own kids. These kids are going to, I'm going to give them everything I never had. I'm going to invest everything in them and my life's going to have purpose through my children. You get to put your faith in something or in someone. And God's there the whole time going, I would recommend put it in me. (laughs) That's what God's saying. But guess what? God is so good that he's inviting you to put your faith and your trust in him. He's not pressuring you. He's not coercing you. He's not manipulating you. He's just inviting you. I'm here as an option, the recommended option, but I'm here. I'm not going to kick your door down. I'm not going to make you do it. I'm not going to appear in your bedroom at night so that you for once and for all can believe because you saw Jesus in physical form in your room. He's not going to do that, but he's here. He's here in the scriptures. He's here among us as the church and the people of God. And he's saying, put your faith in me. I was reminded yesterday as I was reading the uh, Pilgrim's Progress I've been reading with my children. We read the chapter uh, about the fiery darts of the enemy and the shield of faith. So that's from the scripture, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. So close your eyes for a minute today. Let me just read this to you. Just close your eyes for a moment. You all know this scripture. If you've been around church for a while, you're going to know this scripture. If you haven't, this might be new to you, but just take this into your heart. Hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. What a simple scripture, but a powerful scripture. That is the core of the faith journey. It's the shield of faith. There's fiery darts, there's lies, there's tensions, there's confusions. There's a crisis of faith waiting at your door to confuse you, to take your faith away from God, to encourage you to deconstruct your faith until there's no faith left. But the Bible tells us, take up your shield of faith. Your faith is a shield. It protects you from lies. It protects you from people that don't want to believe. It protects you from coming to a place of crisis in your journey with God. God doesn't want you to be stuck. He wants you to keep journeying forward. He's not asking for your perfection. He's not asking for your performance, but he wants you to continue to journey forward, walking down the path of faith and trust in him. But it will require you at many different times to lift up your shield of faith. Amen? The person next to you, say amen. Amen. 
Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3 is God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 12 to 25 is Abraham's faith journey, partnership, progeny, and place. This is what God promises Abraham. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a son, and you're going to have a land. You're going to have a home. You know, this mysterious figure of the ancient northeast, Abraham, 4, 000, about 4,000 years ago, he was walking the earth. Three, all three of the world's greatest religions claim Abraham as their father, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They all trace their heritage back to Father Abraham, the father of many nations. And God promises him, makes a covenant with him. That's a new word for you. It just is the highest level of relationship that two persons can ever have is a covenant. It's higher than an acquaintance. It's higher than just a friendship. It's a partnership, a deep partnership. It's bigger than a business partnership. It's a heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul, life-to-life, until death do us part kind of partnership. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Today. So Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1 says that sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. So we learned last week that Abram actually was with his father, Terah, and a couple of brothers. And one of the brothers died, so death in the family, a difficult time in the family. And Abram had his wife, Sarai. They didn't have any children, but they stayed with his father. Maybe they felt responsible after the death of the brother. Maybe they felt they were all a bit stuck. They had been going on a journey, but they got stuck in this place called Haran, and they were there. But then God calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and says, Hey, leave your father. Leave your home. Leave your job. Leave your family and friends and go to a place that I will show you. Just a place. He didn't know the place, but just go to a place. And Abram, and this is, the first, this is why the detachment test is the first test on the faith journey. You've got to detach from the old to go into the new. And what did we learn last week? That Abram obeyed God and he left. He detached himself from everything that was familiar. He allowed it to end. He allowed it to stop. He allowed it to die. And he went on to a new beginning, a faith journey. Isn't this what happens when you become a Christian? You detach from the world, you detach from your old life. And in, in, in Christian circles, we often call this to be born again. We're reborn as a new person and we go off on a new journey. But if we don't detach from the old, who's had a friend before that's maybe become a Christian or started coming to church, but they couldn't quite detach? What happens? The faith journey stops. Maybe you've had a time in your life where you got reattached to things that poisoned your faith and then you stopped on the journey or you stepped off the path or you got stuck for a while. The detachment test is critical to begin in the right step. So Abram's walked this path now and we've jumped over a couple of chapters but the story of Lot where he separated from his nephew has happened. Lot went down to Sodom and Gomorrah and Sodom and Gomorrah the city got destroyed by God and then Lot was saved from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah And then Abram comes and meets this mysterious priest king named Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. So he's been on a bit of a journey so far. We've jumped a couple of chapters, I'm sorry. But then God says to Abram right here in verse 1, I'm going to protect you and I will be your great reward. God is assuring Abram 
that he's going to be okay. He's been through some stuff. He just saw Sodom and Gomorrah fire fall from heaven and flatten a city. So he's a bit, whew, he's a bit rattled. So God comes to him and says, it's okay. Don't we need this sometimes? <laughs> this is why prayer is so important, just to get in the place of prayer, you and God. Because this is often where God assures us, it's okay, I'm going to protect you. Oh, I feel a bit unprotected, God. It's okay. I'm going to look after you. Oh, that's good because I'm feeling a bit vulnerable right now. I'm going through some stuff. I just saw fire fall from heaven and squash a city. Like, are we okay? Is everything all right? God assures Abraham everything's okay. But Abraham replies, what good are these blessings that you talk about, God, and I don't even have a son? Abram's not stupid. You're not stupid. Who's been in that position before? You're not, you're not stupid. God, you said this. I just want to, let's, let's just check in, God. Okay, let's do some prayer. You said this and this and this and this and this. What's going on about those promises? Anyone feel like that at the moment? What's happening with all that stuff I thought you said to me? All those words, all those promises, all this stuff I read in the Bible. Not seeing a lot of that right now. Now, Renee read out beautifully to us God's response, but I'm going to put it in a little bit of a different tone because I think God more grabs Abram by the arm and takes him outside and says it more like this. Look at the stars, Abram. See those stars up there? I think he raised his voice a little bit. Can I just read that into it? Let me make it clear for you about my promises. When I make a promise, see all those stars up there? If you can count them, that is the number of children that you are going to have. That is the number of your descendants. That is the size of the promise that I have made. It's not one star or two stars. It's all of those stars. That's how I see it. That's my promise to you, Abram. He makes it crystal clear. He gives him something visible. Because Abram's struggling to conceptualize. What, what do you mean descendants? What do you mean a land? What do you mean all of these promises? I want to see something real. I want to see something material. So God begins to show him some things that he can attach to, some physical things that he can understand, the stars in the sky. And this becomes a theme all throughout the Bible of looking to the stars of the sky and the descendants. He's worried. There's all these promises you're, you're, you're talking to me about. Is it going to go to this servant, Elysia. Am I going to die and just this servant picks it up? Is that, is that the plan? It seems, that doesn't seem like a good plan. God says, no, I'm going to give you a son, a blood son, a real physical son. Abram's probably looking at his uh, biological clock. He's looking at his wife's biological clock. They're beginning to, to age a little bit now. They're probably at this point in the story, they're probably in their mid-70s with no son, no child. A great nation, I can't even have one child. The point of these few verses is that God is not afraid of your doubts. God is not afraid of your requirement as a human to need some assurances, to need some affirmations, to need some reminders. God is not afraid of your questions. This is the beauty of of the Christian life. This is the phenomenal. Every other religion in the world requires you to follow a particular code 
of, con- of conduct, of action, of speech. The Christian faith offers you a journey with a real relationship with God where the only assurance you've got is to talk it out with Him. God offers you relationship for the journey. When you come to a place of your faith is in a bit of a crisis, when you're not sure if you believe anymore, that's actually the point. That's actually what God wants. He wants you to bottom out. He wants you to go, man, all my lifting my hands in worship, it doesn't work anymore. All my reading the scriptures, oh, I'm not getting much out of that anymore. Got all these great Christian friends, but they can't do it for me anymore. That's the point. Because God's like, yeah, it's me. Your church isn't going to get you there. Your pastor's not going to get you there. Your job or your wife's not going to get you there. You need me. Let's talk it out. He's sitting there all the time. We even sung it this morning about his voice. He wants to talk to you and he wants you to listen. And he wants you to talk and he wants to listen. That's the faith journey. And that's full of doubt. And it's full of questions and it's full of concerns. And he expects you and me as a fragile human being to need many assurances along the way that he did mean what he says and his promises are true and he's not lying. The lie that we have to be careful of is this worldly idea of deconstruction. So deconstruction is a word that gets thrown around now. It's a postmodern enlightenment idea. It comes from an evolutionary, naturalistic worldview. And it means that anything that's socially constructed, like church or like religion, isn't divine, isn't from heaven. The scriptures aren't sacred. They're just constructed. Religion is here to help people deal with the suffering of life. It soothes our soul. But there's no God, there's no real faith. It's actually for weak and needy people like you and me who need to go to church because we're not strong enough. So this, out of this worldview, this non-Christian worldview comes this idea of deconstruction. Everything should be pulled apart until we get down to what the real truth is at the bottom. And religion is the first thing that needs to be pulled apart. When this idea comes into the church, All it does is give us a selfish reason to doubt God. If your doubt leads to self-protection, your rights, your ability to be alone without the church community and to separate yourself, then that's not the kind of doubt that we're talking about. God isn't encouraging you to doubt yourself out of faith, doubt yourself out of the body of Christ. But God is encouraging you to doubt Him in order for your faith to grow, to ask questions so that you know answers, to doubt and doubt and doubt until you get a breakthrough and you believe God in a whole new way. God is asking for that kind of doubt. Paul explains this really well. He explains Abraham in light of Jesus in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. It says, So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. Everyone say free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. Let that sink in for a moment. Abraham is the father of all who believe. So this is 2,000 years later. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Christians who live in Rome. And he says, Abraham is the father of all who believe. Abraham is the model. 
This is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God who brings the dead back to life, who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. Remember the stars in the sky? And Abraham's faith did not weaken Even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Let's go back to our scripture in Genesis here. Genesis 15, verse 6. This is the core of Abraham's faith journey. This is the core of our faith. Just the one before, sorry. Back, back, back. Genesis 15, verse 6 says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Back one more. Sorry, I'm going up and down here. The last verse then, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. This is the belief test. There it is, right there, verse 6. Meditate on that this week, pray on that this week, think about that this week. This is the belief test. You believe God or you don't. When you believe God, you count it as righteous, which means God looked at Abraham and went, this is the right way to live. Trusting me, believing in my promises. This is the right way to conduct yourself. And then Paul picks it up in Romans 4 and reminds us that Abraham was the original believer. Amen? Let's move on. The second part of Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. Everyone say land. Remember, we've got a place, we've got progeny, and we've got a promise, or we've got a partnership. But Abram replied, here he is again, asking questions. Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess this land? So the first part of Genesis 15 is, how can we be sure about this many nations thing when I don't even have a son? And my servant's the only person that I could see that can inherit everything. I'm just going to die and it's going to go to this servant. God assures him, all right, what about this place, this land, this great land that you're going to give to little old me who's got nothing? I left my father. I left Haran. I left where we were. I detached from all of that. You promised me some place. What is this some place? What is this land? What is this point B? Have you ever been there in your faith journey? Where are we going, God? (laughs) You promised this destination. When do we get there? I'm kind of expecting an oasis and I'm expecting like lots of joy and lots of sun and you know, lots of money and lots of uh, you know, people who think I'm awesome. And where is this place, God? This is the faith journey. When do we arrive? Again, God encourages the doubt. God is not afraid to reassure Abram of where they're going. God wants Abraham and his people to put down roots. Now, this is such a critical part of your faith journey. Unbelief is so idolized in our culture. To, not, to be skeptical is highly valued in Aussie culture. Skepticism is seen for the learned, for the wealthy, for the superior, for the people who have it together. Faith Faith is for people who are weak and needy and need to trust in something like a God. But I want to encourage you today, put your roots down 
in faith and trust in God. And when you put your roots down in faith and trust in God, then you'll put your roots down in a place, in a real physical place. Zoe and I have put our roots in this city, have put our roots in this church, have put our kids' roots here. We want our family to be here. This is our home, this crappy little suburb out here in Caram Downs, a Botanic Ridge where I live. I love it. Not because it's awesome, not because it's sunny every day, not because it's the place that I would choose to live if I could live anywhere, but because God is here and I want to have a place. Reject being transient. Reject moving to another city. Reject leaving your friends and making a whole new bunch of friends. Put your faith down. Put roots to your faith. Your faith journey is so limited if you move around all the time, if you move jobs, move friendship groups, move houses, move this, move that. But this is idolized in our culture to be on the move. But this isn't the faith journey of a Christian. It's one that puts down roots. So to it, this is, the, this is the kicker today, everyone. To assure Abram that God is with him and that he's not going to forsake him. He says to him, and I know this sounds a little bit weird, but he says to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, verse 9, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, if you're not familiar with ancient Near East sacrificial rituals, then it's going to sound a little bit weird to you, okay? But back in the day, this is what they did to make a partnership or a treaty or a covenant. So the king that was in power would often make a treaty with a kingdom or a king that he had conquered. And what would happen is the king who had conquered the king, the other king, the city, would make a treaty with his subordinate. And the way that they would make a treaty or the way they would make a covenant is that they would sacrifice animals. Remember, we're going back 4,000 years ago here, okay? So now it sounds a bit weird. So God, using the same ritual of the day, says to Abram, let's do this. Let's make a covenant. Bring me a a heifer, a goat, and a ram. So Abraham cuts the heifer in half. (laughs) Splits it in two. Cuts the ram in half. He's got a massive machete, okay? Moves it to the side so the two are separated. What's the next one? A goat, is it? A female goat. Cuts it in half. Not so difficult as the heifer. Separates them in half. So there's blood everywhere on the ground. There's half a heifer there, half a heifer there, a goat. Separates them in half. And then what would happen in these ancient treaties is the subordinate, the king who's been conquered, would walk through the sacrifice as a sign of commitment to the partnership. Now, if they broke this covenant or this partnership, the king would have the right to cut him in two. That's what you, it was a blood covenant. That's why we often use the terminology to cut covenant because the animals are cut and if you break covenant, you get cut. You get destroyed. And the superior king would have all the power to send this conquered king to death to say whether he followed the partnership or not and it would set fear in the hearts of those who were conquered, that death was awaiting you if you break this treaty. Verse 17, let's jump there. After the sun went down and darkness fell, 
Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. This is where it gets a little bit weird. This is sometimes what we call a theophany. Theo meaning God. He shows up in some kind of physical form. So this smoking fire pot must have been on the fire. Maybe it was heating up there water for a cup of tea later that night, I don't know, and a torch, okay? Not like a torch with a flashlight torch, but a, an ancient torch, okay? They come up from the ground. So God appears in material form, a pot and a torch. Now the pot and the torch begin to levitate off the ground, and Abram's watching this, kind of, it's dark, can't see properly, and this, is that, a, is that a pot moving? Is that a torch moving on its own? And it's God appearing to him. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. Here's the pot, here's the torch. They begin to move. First of all, they go between the two halves of the goat. And go between the two halves of the ram. Abraham's starting to click. He's starting to realize, hang on a second. God is walking between the two halves. He goes through the two halves of the heifer. Abraham was preparing himself to walk through the halves of the animals. Abraham was completely convinced that he was the inferior the subordinate, the one who would be making the commitment, the one that would be taking the covenant, the one that would be swearing that if I don't trust you, God, you can cut me in two. But it's not Abram that walks between the animals. It's not Abraham that has to lay down his life, that has to make the commitment. It's not Abraham that has to put everything on the line. It's God. God totally flips the relationship and says, if I don't keep my promises, if I don't bring about a son and a land and a nation and many nations, and I don't keep to this partnership and I don't stick to this covenant, I will be cut in two. And you and I both know that God cannot be cut in two. He is one. God cannot lie. He can never be He can never have a split tongue. He can never be divided in his commitments. God takes the covenant with Abram and he commits to remaining true to the covenant. This is why today when we take communion, we take this because this blood represents the covenant that was commit when Jesus died on the cross. This blood that Jesus shed For us, it's the same covenant. 2,000 years after Abraham, Jesus came as the chosen son. Jesus came to that place, that land that had been promised to Abraham. Jesus came in the same blood lineage. He was called a son of Abraham. He was called a son of David. And he came and shed his blood God again put his life on the line. God again said, till death do us part. God again came down, this time not as a torch, not as a smoking pot, 
but he revealed himself in a different physical form. He came finally as a real human being and said, I will be cut in two on the cross. My clothes will be divided up. My blood will be shed. Not just heifers and rams and goats, but the actual son of God will be beaten and tortured and bloodied, will cut covenant with the human race in order to again, once and for all, when Jesus came, it was the final sacrifice. It was the final commitment of God. It was the final assurance. After all the assurances from Abraham to King David, all through the Old Testament, eventually in the New Testament, the new covenant, the new covenant that was cut with God's own blood, God gave us his final assurance and commitment that you can trust me. And for 2,000 years, People that have followed Jesus, people that have believed in God, have lived out of this final commitment of God's own son and his death on the cross. And that's why we take communion. Why don't we all just stand today and take it together?